This is the Far Out Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Hannon, and today's special guest is Joe Elliott. Yeah, Joe Elliott. This episode is brought to you by the Monsters of Rock Cruise, Out of Bounds Brewing Company, and Gibson Guitars. Good morning, everybody. I'm Frank Hannon. This is the Far Out Podcast, Episode 8. And that music you're hearing right there is Down and Outs, a band created by Joe Elliott, the lead singer of Def Leppard. You guys know Joe. Joe. And I've known Joe for a long time. We have a long history together. And we're going to have a conversation today about Down and Outs, the stadium tour, and him playing guitar. Speaking of far out. Far out. Hey, so before we get into this interview, I want to say happy freaking New Year, man. Can't believe it. We're already into the first week of January 2020, and things are getting busy already, man. Next week, I'm going to be in L.A. at the Anaheim Convention Center for the NAM show. Uh, going to be there representing and playing Gibson guitars, baby. That's right. I'll be set up in the acoustic booth. I'm going to do a couple of acoustic sets there and uh, do some jamming, of course. Jared James Nichols will be there. Dave Rude will be there. Oh, man, so many great artists attend the NAMM show. Slash is going to be rocking. Be sure to come find me at the Gibson booth at the NAMM show in Anaheim this year, coming up next week. And then the following Friday, January 24th, the Frank Hannon Band will be rocking at the legendary Whiskey A Go Go Club on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood. That's right, January 24th, Friday night. I go on about 11 o'clock, and I'm going to invite some people to come jam at that show, too. The Frank Hannon Band at the Whiskey A Go Go, the Friday after the NAM show. That's January 24th, 2020, at the Whiskey A Go Go. You can still get advanced tickets for that show at the Whiskey. Speaking of advanced tickets, we also have advanced tickets for my Heavy Metal Hippie Double IPA release party at the Out of Bounds Brewing Company in Folsom, California. That's right. February 1st. It's a Saturday night. It's the last show I'm doing of the season before I hit the road with Tesla. So if you want to come taste the heavy metal hippie and get some cans and some cases, its debut party is going to be at the Out of Bounds Brewing Company, Folsom, California. Also, we're offering a VIP lunch break. You can come and have a draft to taste the heavy metal hippie, hang out with me for the sound check and get some pictures. Go to frankhannon.com. Again, that's frankhannon.com. You'll see a link there to where you can get your advance tickets through Eventbrite for the Heavy Metal Hippie release party. That's Saturday, February 1st, coming up in a few weeks. The Heavy Metal Hippie Double IPA release party at Out of Bounds Brewing Company and the VIP Soundcheck Experience. Check out frankhannon.com for more details. Be sure to join us on the Monsters of Rock cruise, setting sail February 8th, and rockin' for a week on the ocean. Join us for the Monsters of Rock cruise. (laughs) Oh, this is too much fun, man. Uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I like producing these uh, podcasts up a little bit. Uh, the last one I did on New Year's Eve, though, was pretty stripped down, and I got a lot of uh, a lot of feedback on that one because I was telling some stories, and a lot of you fans really like the stories. So 
I'm going to tell you a little story now about when Tesla was on tour with Def Leppard in 1987. It was the Hysteria Tour in the round, and we were the opening band for like the first four legs of that tour. We went overseas with them. We did the UK. We did Ireland. And then we came back and did the States. And we got really close to Joe and Sav and Steve Clark and Phil. And speaking of Steve Clark... I was sitting in the lobby of the hotel one afternoon. We had a day off in Nashville, Tennessee, and and Steve Clark, like myself, was always a Gibson guitar player. Um, I preferred the SGs, and I had a Les Paul and a double neck, and so did Steve, but Steve was a Les Paul guy. In fact, you know, before Slash took over the throne as the king of the Les Paul, Steve Steeman Clark was the king of the Les Paul in the early 80s. You know, this is in the day of, of all the Jacksons and Charvels and all these other pointy guitars uh, during the Van Halen craze, but Steve Steeman Clark preferred the classic sound of the Gibson Les Paul, and I was a huge Gibson fan too. So anyway, I'm sitting in the lobby of the hotel, kind of minding my own business, and here comes Steve Clark and his tech, Malvin, out of the elevator, and uh, you know, stumbling around a little bit. I think Steve had a glass of brandy going already. It was about three in the afternoon, and he comes up to me, and he gives me this big grin, and he goes, hey, bud, I'm going to the Gibson factory. Do you want to go? And I was like, really? Yeah. And so they they offered for me to tag along, and I jumped in the cab with them, and we went out to this uh huge factory where they where they built Gibson guitars and you know for a boy from South Sacramento this was a big deal and you know they're rolling out the red carpet for Steve Clark cuz like I said he was the king of the Gibson Les Paul in the early 80s and uh they rolled out the red carpet we all came in there and had a great time and toured the factory and uh they were offering Steve all kinds of artists endorsements and and they had a big poster of him in there and they were giving him uh some acoustics and different things and we were playing guitars all day and then finally at the end of the day they they turned to me and said hey you're that guy in the modern day cowboy video playing an SG and I said yes I am I sure I love Gibsons I'm a huge Gibson player it's my favorite guitar and they said well, would you like to leave here today with a guitar? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And so they said, which one would you like? And they pointed up to that cherry double neck at the top of the row there. It was unreachable. And I said, I'll take that one right there. And so they brought it down and I've had it ever since. And my relationship with Gibson has been for over 30 years. I love Gibson guitars. It's obvious. And it's obvious Steve Clark did too. And it's also very obvious that Joe Elliott loves the sound of a Gibson Les Paul. If you listen to Down and Out's album where Joe's playing guitar, he's kicking ass. So let me not waste any more time. Let's get to the interview with Joe Elliott so he can tell us all about Down and Outs and what he's been doing. Frank. Hey, Joe, what's happening, man? It's morning out here. Oh, <laughs> uh, good, man. It's great. I'm in Dublin. I'm at home in Dublin where we have blue, beautiful, well, we did have beautiful blue skies until the sun went down. But yeah. It's, it's nippy because it's December and it's nearly Christmas and it's, you know. Man, Island got, is a cold place, but it's nice when you're indoors with a roaring fire. A rolling you fire. You know, I I have a uh, a new fire in my house. I just flick a switch and it comes on. <laughs> no more chopping wood for this guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're we're done with the chopping wood lock. <laughs> hey, so let me just uh, set this up really quick. It's rolling already. So um, here I'll do a quick intro, okay? And then we will just roll roll with it. Cool, man. 
Go. <clears throat> Crazy. Hey, all you Far Out podcasters. Thank you for tuning in to the Far Out podcast. I'm your host, Frank Hannon, and I've got a longtime friend, a very special guest on the phone calling from his home in Dublin, Ireland, the one and only Joe Elliott. What's happening, Joe? Hey, bud. Good to be with you on your little podcast. What a privilege and an honor. Thank uh, you. Uh, thanks for taking some time to be on the Far Out podcast. You know, the theme of the Far Out podcast is talking to guys like us who also do other things outside of their normal uh, routine. So uh, I want to touch on down and outs and Def Leppard, maybe some football. But uh, first, I want to congratulate you on the fastest-selling stadium tour in history, man. Over 700,000 tickets sold already in the first weekend, man. That kicks ass. Yeah, we were hoping, we were really (laughs) hoping it would be good. Uh, And as they like to say in the business, good out of the box, you know, like first couple of days. But it has, I think it's gone beyond everybody's expectations. I mean, it's, it makes you feel like a little boy again when you, you see the numbers that are flying around and yeah. the excitement that it's creating. And, you know, people like us that have, that have experienced that kind of euphoria or that kind of, excuse the pun, hysteria in the past. <laughs> um, to experience it again, you know, you've, you've been there and you've done it. So it's easy to just take it for granted, but we are actually doing the opposite. We're feeling like it's a blessing and such an, a gift and a privilege to be in this position one more time to play in front of what's going to be an enormous amount of people on every night with such a great lineup of bands. You know, I mean, it's yeah, it's just going to be like one huge big traveling circus, or a, you know, it's it's going to be like um, it's a festival. It's going to be like a full-on festival that just travels from stadium to stadium, and I, I can't wait for it to start. I'll be honest. You know, yeah, it's like that. So it's, it's going to be big, man. It's going to be big. It's awesome, man. And uh, Milwaukee was the first uh, show to sell out. Of course, the Midwest has is, is always been a great rock and roll town. And, you know, we've always had great memories with you guys there. So let's switch over to Down and Outs, man. I've been listening to the album, and I'm, I'm just blown away by the lyrics and the songwriting. I mean, you've taken it to a whole new level because the band started off as, as a sort of a tribute band. Is that right? Yeah, well, what, I'll tell you what happened. Right? I'll give you the two-minute kind of synopsis of the whole thing. Mob the Hoople, who split up in 1974, never to be seen again, went their separate ways, right? Um, yeah. Ian Hunter left to, to start a great solo career, which had Mick Ronson in and out of the line for many years until he sadly passed away in 93. Um, the, the rest of the band abbreviated the name to Mott, and they carried on with a, a singer called Nigel Benjamin, who coincidentally used to be in a band called London with Nicky Six. Oh yeah, crew. yeah. Um, but before he moved to LA, he was he was in this British-based abbreviated Mott band, which then when he left to go to LA, they morphed into a band called British Lions um, with a singer from a band called Medicine Head, John Fiddler, his name was, and they put out two albums. The abbreviated Mott put out two albums, and Ian Hunter did loads of solo stuff. Now, when they reformed in two thousand and nine, which is ten years ago now. I had spent the, the, the previous 25, 30 years telling the world how wonderful I thought Mother Hoople were. And this gets back to the band, especially when the band that I'm in becomes so successful. And I became friends with Ian. I got to know most of the guys in the band over the years, especially over in what's the bass player, Mick Ralphs, who went on to have major success with Bad Company. Um, I got to know them over the years. And 
And as a kind of a thank you for me keeping the name alive, they wanted me involved in these reunion shows. And I said, well, I can't figure out what you want me to do. And I'm thinking they might just want me to introduce them on stage or something. And Ian said, we want you to put a band together and open for us on the last night of the London shows. <laughs> wow. And I was like, I was like, okay, no pressure, no, <laughs> very flattering, but how am I going to do that? Well, luckily, the, the same promoter that looked after Mott, the, re, the reform Mott, also looked after the choir boys, or as they called in America, the London choir boys. Yeah. And he said, they've very generously volunteered to be your band and Spike the singer will step aside and you can borrow them. So I went, okay, cool. So what am I to do? Well, if I'm going to open for Mop the Hoople, I don't really feel like doing Death Leopard songs. It sounds a bit wrong, just yeah. wrong, you know. So all those bands that I mentioned previously, British Lions, Mott, and, and Ian Solo stuff, I thought, how cool would it be to open for Mott doing some of the stuff that they did after they split? So I, I, I attacked the Mott catalog of 75 and 76, Ian Solo stuff of 75 and 77, and the British Lion stuff of 77 and 78. Wow. And um, I did I cherry-picked 10 songs that I thought would be in. I, I imagined myself in the front row watching myself do it. What would I want to hear me do? So <laughs> I kind of hoped that everybody else would think the same way. And luckily, we got on stage and we start playing these songs, and all the kids that were like not fans followed the splinter it's kind of like when the beatles split yeah. people carried on listening to mccartney and lennon and george harrison and ringo Starr. so they there are these songs they just hadn't heard them since 1975 76 uh-huh. so of course we finish our little set and we think we're going to go our separate ways uh thank you very much everybody that was a great 45 minutes see you down the road somewhere so we go to the bar at the Hammersmith Apollo. We go to the bar and we literally get press ganged by dozens of kids who said, are you going to record those songs? Because we never thought we'd ever hear them again. You should make an album. Right. Never occurred to me that we would record them, you know? Yeah. So I said to the guys, I said, look, while they're fresh in our DNA, because we'd spent five days monstrously rehearsing for this one-off performance. I said, do you want to record them while they're still fresh? And they, to a man, they all said yes. So Guy Griffin, the, 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 the kind of the oldest mainstay of the choir boys, has a studio situation close to where he lives. And he took everybody in there, recorded their parts, and mm. then they sent them over to me in Pro Tools, which is like a nice, tidy digital package. Mm-hmm. And I brought the session up in my studio, and I added my parts to it. And voila, we had my regeneration which came out in 2010 yeah now i put the album out thinking okay we'll see what happens you know we gave it away in planet on uh we gave it away in um classic rock magazine in 2010 Uh sold it in the states so it had a a big following and um you know a lot of people heard the album in the uk because they got it for free you know yeah yeah (laughs) but in america very oddly we had two songs do extremely well at American radio. England Rocks went top five. Overnight Angels went number one on the media-based rock chart for 12 days. I'm thinking, this band doesn't even exist, and it's keeping Eric Clapton off the top of the chart. (laughs) It was just a crazy 
a crazy situation. So once that had settled down and we're like going, Jesus, I wasn't expecting this. Mm-hmm. We kind of realized we probably needed to make a second album. Yeah. So cut to 2014 and that's how long it takes for us to get together because we've all got very busy motherships. Def Leppard, the choir boys, you know, um, by then Cher Ross from Vixen was on board. Um, we got, you know, it's just difficult getting everybody together in, all in one go. Right, right. But um, we, we did. We managed, we managed to pull together the, the, the second album, which was uh, The Further Adventures Of. Um, and by then, because we've got no connections to a touring Mott the Hoople situation, we raided the Mott the Hoople back catalogue. So I went really deep into their stuff with things like Rock and Roll Queen, One of the Boys, Marionette, all these great songs from, from, from their catalogue which I had to avoid on the first album. Uh-huh. And then cut to the third album. We got together, we did, we did a tour, we did a tour with Paul Rogers, we did a tour of clubs on our own, and then we all went our separate ways to go back to our day jobs, you know? Yeah. And um, as we talked over the years about a third album, we knew we'd kind of done the mock thing to death. We yeah. were, that, we'd, that well was dry now. So we briefly discussed the idea of doing other people's songs, maybe... Humble Pie, Wings, ELO, 10CC, God knows what, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but then that, uh, about 10 minutes after that conversation, I just said, what about we try writing an album instead? And they all just went, okay, if we get the chance, you know. Yeah. Well, I just kept attacking it and waiting for them to make some kind of contribution to it, mm-hmm. which never, uh, never, never happened, you know. Yeah. And I can see why, because a lot of the songs that Griff or Paul Gearing might write for the down and outs would actually work very well for the choir boys. Yeah. So yeah. I could understand the, there was a little bit of a conflict of interest, but with me, there wasn't because when I sat down to write for this project, I sat down at the piano, which as you can imagine, is not something that happens very frequently in a Def Leppard writing session. So I knew that whatever I came up with wasn't going to be of conflict of interest with Def Leppard at all, you know? Yeah. So, I wrote seven or eight songs on the piano. I did write two on the guitar. But again, I wrote them in such a way that they were a different style altogether. They were more leaning towards Humble Pie or MC5 or something like that than they were um, Def Leppard, I think, to the, to, for the most point. There's some crunchy rhythm guitar playing that I've noticed that you're doing on this album. And, you know, I've known that you play guitar, yeah. but, man, you're really kicking ass on a guitar. The Les Paul tones are, are crunching on This Is How We Roll. So, But you said you wrote a lot of these songs on the piano, which I've heard as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, this is this is how we roll. is a, is is the is the classic example of the one that I wrote on the piano. But that opening riff is very very kind of Steve Marriott, Pete Frampton, humble pie ish, I think, and yeah. a little bit of Brain Capers, Mott the Opal. It's very seventies, and it's a and that is me on the intro. The intro guitar is me, and it's just like I, Ronan, our sound guy, gets a great sound and then gives me the guitar. Now I don't have the finesse of people like yourself or Phil or Vivian. But I've got that crunchiness that you get out of Johnny Thunders or Chrissy Hind or, you know, any of these oh, yeah. guys that are just rhythm players, you know. So, and, and I, because I wrote it, it sounds good when I play it because that's how it sounds in my head. That's <laughs> right. why it got written that way. So yeah. it works fine. And then the other guys, Paul and Griff, come in and they do all their really cool stuff. And so you get this great balance of slop and, and precision all put into one bucket and and spun round, you know, so that's how it happened. You know, I started writing the demos 
2014, 2015. And over the years, we had to get together for two or three days at a time and then just mothball the project. Um, But because the songs were very 70s, they were never going to age badly because (laughs) they're already from a different headspace. This this album wouldn't have sounded much different if it came out three years ago or if it came out in three years' time. The production may have changed a little bit song-wise. Nothing would have changed arrangement-wise, melody-wise would have been the same. So I didn't have a a worry about... um, how long it took. I was just concerned that I'd never get it finished. Right. But when we finally did, we did our, we did the final mix of the song, Boys You Don't Cry, which is the last mix we did. It was that, that was the last song to be written. Um, the, the week after we got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So right up to fame, I was mixing this record. We took a break to go and work on that for the, for the week. And then I came back here and went back into down and out mode and flipped the album off. So it was very exciting doing that, but it's a little nervy because, you know, you're jumping from one headspace to another and you've got to kind of not forget where you were when you go off to do something else. So when you come back, you don't go, now, where were we? You know, I had to keep it alive in my mind. So as I'm doing the speech at the Hall of Fame, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, got to get back to the down and out. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of a wild week. It really was. But I'm so glad we got it finished. And, and I, you know, like I said, the songs come from a different place. They come from, um, you know, I didn't have to worry about what the guys in Leopard thought. I was writing from a more introspective spot from a lyrical point of view. And musically, I didn't have to worry whether they thought it was not musical enough. And, and, and in fairness, Paul Gearing, the guitar player who plays most of the solos on the album, really bought into how I wanted it to sound. And the stuff that he played on songs like Creatures and the solos that he plays on Good Night, Mr. Jones and on Last Man Standing are just to die for. He's, I said, I want you to be my Mick Ronson and he said, you don't even have to ask. And, you know, it was that kind of relationship. It was, it was so easy. We just slotted together like we'd known each other all our lives. It was very cool. Yeah, you can feel that, man. I absolutely love the album. And you know me, I'm the guy in Tesla who's definitely rooted in the 70s uh, retro feel and just the feel of the album. The lyrics are, I had to listen to Last Man Standing like five times in a row last night. That song is just absolutely stellar. Obviously, there's your British influences in the sounds, you know, Bowie and Elton John and Mont the Hoople. But I'm also hearing some Americana feel in this album, too. You know, a little bit of Skinnerd. And would it be safe to say a little bit of Doobie Brothers? Uh, uh, the feeling of the vocals that I'm hearing in that song, Last Man Standing, I'm it's it's just freaking phenomenal. Are you influenced by some American music too? Oh yeah, for sure. I I, I I'm interesting you say the doobies. That must come from the harmonies or something. Um, musically, when I first started writing that song, it's one of those songs where I was moving the root note. Um, I was moving the, the the left hand up a tone, but the, leaving the left hand on the original key, yeah, you know, chord. So you got this like weird twist. It's not jazz, but it's just very Todd Rundgrenish. But he actually sounded like J- Joe Jackson yeah. when I first started putting it together. And I thought, oh, I'm okay with that. I'm a huge fan of 70s Joe Jackson stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I can see where that would leak in. I can hear what you're saying about Skinner. For me, it was more Leon Russell, but that, of that kind of sound on a song called Let It Shine and uh, on, a, on the song Walking to Babylon is a very much of that kind of Skinner. Uh, 
just the size of it, you know, the, the piano being not getting in the way of the guitars, but making it sound different to a band that's only guitars. Oh, the song that really hit hard like that with me, that really I loved, is Goodnight Mr. Jones, man. That just had so much soul and feel to it as well. The lyrics, it kind of had a little bit of Skinner Americana feel to it. But uh, tell us about Goodnight Mr. Jones and who is Mr. Jones? Well, Goodnight Mr. Jones is my Bowie tribute. You know, David Bowie was born David Jones ah. and changed his name. Because uh, at the time that he was trying to break through in the UK, Davy Jones from the Monkeys was the biggest pop star in the world. Right. So he couldn't have two Davy Jones. So he changed his name to David Bowie. Um, but everybody knew he was born Jones. So I wrote that piece of music, and it, to me, it had the kind of, same kind of feel as a song like Life on Mars uh, by Bowie. Yeah. And I was always going to do some kind of tribute to him because he's been such an inspiration to me as a as a fan of Bowie's music since I was 11 years old, you know. And, I mean, just an enormous fan of his, his work all my life, pretty much. So I was devastated when he died. And once I'd written that song, I thought, wow, this is starting to sound like Spiders from Mars stuff. Yeah. I really thought, well, I might as well go the whole way and I'll write it about Bowie, you know. And I was playing around words, and then all of a sudden, when I got to the chorus bit, it just came out. It was like catching lightning. I just, my mouth just went there, and out came the words, good night, Mr. Jones. And I thought, ooh, that's nice and tasty. It's a good title. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I had the stars of your spirit, the earth as your flesh and your bones. Yes. And I went, wow, okay. I didn't even feel like I'd written it. I felt like I'd stolen it. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. This is just one of those magic moments where you go, ooh, that's nice. And I just I just had to make sure that the rest of the song never dipped below that, you know. Um, and, and as I said, musically, it is very much in that 70s mode. Uh, but the guitar solo in the middle uh, that Paul Gearing did, still, if I'm listening to it, the hairs on my arms start to stand up because he absolutely just nailed that period of time all in one minute of guitar playing. You know, it's a long solo for a song that's so short, but it really works. My wife and I listened to your album last night like six times in a row, and our hair was standing up numerous times. Uh, that guitar solo is awesome. Yeah. And the lyrics, again, you've taken these lyrics. They're very introspective, like you said, but very the first opening lines on these songs just hook you right immediately. Like when you said, God took an axe to my family tree, I was like, what? <laughs> and I just, I had to listen to that like yeah. six times in a row, man. Um, it did, that, that particular line does seem to have hooked a lot of people in. And when I first wrote it down and I went, Oof, this is going to be dark, you know? And, and, and of course, you've got to match music moods to, to lyrical moods. You're not going to yeah. write a song like Last Man Standing and put lyrics to like, let's get rocks on it. <laughs> it's never going to work. Yeah. It's song, it's, you know, you've got to match mood for mood. So when you're doing a stomping, come on, feel the noise type thing, you're going to have a track that says the same thing as the lyrics, you know. Yeah. But when you're going to say something that's a bit more introspective, like Rocket Man or Goodbye Yellow Brick Road or, you know, your song by Elton John, it's going to be more poignant, laid back, down low, maybe with a dr dramatic uplift in the middle and then back down again, which is kind of what Last Man Standing does. Yeah. Um, Good night, Mr. Jones. Slightly different arrangement style, but of that of that ilk, you know. And they work really well. And it's it was 
you know, I'm a huge fan of that kind of music, so it wasn't that difficult for me to move into that way of thinking, that way of arranging and and uh, producing it because it's been part of what I do all my life anyway. Yeah. So in my mind, given the opportunity to do that, it wasn't going to be that difficult because I'm a, such a fan of that music that it's like I'd slot right in, you know, and, and it was a lot of fun to do it. Yeah. Well, you've always set the bar very high uh, as a songwriter. And for us being influenced by you guys, you know, in the 80s and stuff. And then when we got, you know, lucky enough to hook up with the same management team, you know, Cliff and Peter. And Cliff was always, you know, drilling us. you got to write great songs, you know. Listen to Pyromania. Listen to, you know, Hysteria. And, and we were influenced by you guys, obviously. Uh, Tesla was hugely influenced by Def Leppard. In, in your songwriting but with this album it's gone a whole nother level even beyond Def Leppard and I love how you've taken it from a jamming approach it started off as a band that was just jamming together that's what I do with my solo band is it's a lot of jamming and and having fun with that and then it and you had mentioned like trying to juggle the two where you know you've got your mind on one hand with your mothership and the greatness of that in the back of your mind you're thinking about this other creative outlet you've got going so hats off to you for being able to put that together in such a great way with the down and outs i love the album you know so speaking of jamming one of the highlights for me was getting to jam with you guys on love bites at a sound check somewhere i don't know where it was do you remember that (laughs) where you got a great memory i don't know actually i don't remember that but i do remember you getting up and playing with us at the Allentown State Fair sometime in the early 2000s when the Frank Hannon band opened for us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got and to you play- got up on stage with us and you did Let It Go. Some, I think it was Let It Go off high and dry. It definitely was Let It Go, man. <laughs> I'll never forget that, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. I remember that really well. I don't remember doing that. I may not have done that sound check. Sometimes I don't sound check. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, if you'd have done an instrumental version of it or Phil sang it or something, I don't um, But I absolutely remember you getting up on stage with us and us doing Let It Go in front of thousands of people. And the smile on your face was to die for. And it was, <laughs> it was so just, you know, because I'm a music fan. I'm a fan. Yeah. So when I see the fan in somebody else, I see the other person in me and vice versa. Right. Like, I think people that lose... When you lose the, the fan in you as a musician, or some people never had it, but when you lose it, half of your ability to perform the songs and, and maybe keep creating more starts to wane because you must be thinking, oh, it's just a job, it's nine to five, I don't want to do this anymore. And like, dude, I get more excited the older I get. Yeah. I'm, I'm as crazy about music now as I was then. And you that night, with the epitome of like a younger me, if you like, you know, <laughs> just big old smile, playing the riffs and like, this is my thing. It'd have been like me getting up on stage with, with Mott and doing all the young dudes or something like that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Which I have done many times with an inane grin on my face as well. So <laughs> I, I totally get it. And I remember it very well indeed. Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget that. And, you know, that was during a, a low point when uh, Tesla was broke up in the 90s. And uh, you guys were gracious enough to, to help both me and Brian with our little solo projects, we were trying to survive and you took us out on some dates and, uh, yeah, that was a highlight for me getting up and jamming on let it go. Let it go was like an anthem for us when we were in high school. And, you know, 
we used to play a few songs off the High and Dry album. You know, sometimes before it broke over here, we were the first ones to get it in the import section. You know, some of the kids thought they were our own songs. So we, you know, we patterned our, our music after that's, that. Yeah, That's always a way to do it. You know, that's, I, it's funny, you know, the High and Dry album, it, it, it polarizes a lot of people. But it's amazing how many diverse types of musicians have said that album. You know, I met, I met the guy down at Green Day at, at a... Uh, uh, some kind of award ceremony about 15 years ago. And to a man, all three of them said, we played that entire album live when we first started. Yeah. You know, and you can't imagine Green Day playing high and dry. It's like, wow, that's, that's just kind of, that's a, that's, I've got to get my head around that one, you know, but um, it does, you know, I mean, I've, I've, Polly, um, Polly Perrette, who's played the forensic girl in the basement of NCIS, yeah. huge fan of High and Dry. Yeah. I met her at an award ceremony about four years ago. And she was all over me about High and Dry. It was the weirdest thing, you know. It's incredible that well, that record opened so many doors for us, you know, yeah. which we could then kick down a little better a few years later. But yeah, it's we have a lot of fond memories about that album. So what I was talking about, I think Viv was late for a sound check. He was flying in late or something. And it was at a sound check. And it was Love Bites. It was somewhere. And I think, yeah, you just kind of chimed in a little bit here and there. But uh, I, it was a highlight for me, too. Uh, what another beautiful, Well, great, I'm sorry I don't remember that as well as I remember <laughs> uh, Let It Go. But um <laughs> You know, you're welcome to come and jam with us anytime you like, buddy. Anytime. All right. I'll take you up on that, man. Well, speaking of that, here's a silly question for you. Um, will I ever get to hear the song Rocks Off live again? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I love that one. There's something about that no, song, man. No, by the current lineup of the band. Uh, I can't ever see us playing it live because... You know, it's okay to jettison parts of your career, especially when the two guitar players that played on Rocked Off are no longer in the band. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there is a box set coming out uh, early next year called The Early Years, and it's the first two albums, and a live recording of the band from April 1980 at the Oxford New Theatre in the UK, where Rocked Off is played live. Um, in All front right. of the very, very enthusiastic audience. And this is, we recorded it back on in the day, you know, got the Rolling Stones mobile in, and then the tape sat around for 30-odd years, you know. Um, 39, to be quite honest. So much so that we had to bake them to make sure that they were safe to play. Yeah. And then we transferred them into Pro Tools to make sure that they were totally safe. And then we mixed it, and we were surprised how, how good it is for a bunch of kids. Uh, Rick was 15 or 16 years old. Yeah. Sav was 17. I mean, what a rhythm section they were, you know. And Pete and Steve together, there was a great band in the making on that record, you know, on that live performance. We were really, it was the beginning of some of a great journey, you know. You, you hear the energy, it's insane. I mean, the timing's all over the place. I'm not singing as well as I could later on in life. As I've said many times, you peer through the un uncertainty of my voice and you can hear a great band behind me. <laughs> but uh, it was it was a great starting block, you know, it really was. It was the bottom part of the rocket that you need to get you up into orbit. Yes. And, and the live recordings of those songs, it's mostly, it's mostly the first album, um, most of the first album, and a couple of songs that would end up on High and Dry, but in a different format. There was a song called When the Rain Falls, which became Let It Go. Um, there's an embryonic version of Lady Strange, which is not a great deal different. Um, I think there's three songs which ended up on High and Dry, 
two of them with different titles, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, no, the so-called Medicine Man, the so-called Medicine Man, which actually turned into Rock Till You Drop two years later, three years later. You know, so... Well, that's it's, very uh, exciting. It's a very interesting little time capsule, and that's coming out in about three months' time. So, yes, you get to hear that live version, but I don't think you'll see us playing it. Well, I look forward to hearing that. And what is the name of the box set so everyone can look for that? It's just called The Early Years. It's it's The Early Years. It's, you know, 7981. It's called the EP. It's got the first album, a couple of B-sides, uh, High and Dry, with the remixes, because there were no bonus tracks with High and Dry, but we did do remixes in 84, and I think they're on it. But the important thing to a fan, I would imagine, is this never-heard-before live recording from 1980. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited to hear that. And the energy, like you said, I can't wait to hear the Young Leopard guys rocking out, especially on Rocks Off. Now, you guys captured some great energy on the first album in the studios. I know that's probably not really truly live, but it sure kicks ass, that song. I love it. And I uh, look forward to hearing that. No, well, we didn't have enough material when we were doing that first album, which is why we re-recorded um, Overture. And then, you know, we, we, we re-recorded Rocks Off just to be a straightforward album track, just a different version to the one on the EP. Yeah. But um, as we lived during the three weeks, I think it was Tom Allen said, let's just put some audience on it for fun. <laughs> and we did. We weren't really trying to pretend it was really live. Yeah. We were just, I don't know, it was just studio. It was like one of those in-joke studio things that it just, just happened. I can't remember who suggested it, why or when, but it was during that three weeks we made the album. And somebody said, oh, let's just make it sound different. Let's put us on live noises on it. Yeah, I love it. probably lifted him off some Judas Priest live album or something. I don't know. I, I, it's a long, it's a memory long forgotten by me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that and reliving it a little bit for us here on the Far Out Podcast. Far Out. So this podcast thing is a new venture. You know, actually being on the other side of the mic and, and like interviewing people. I read somewhere that you do a radio show too. Tell me about that a little I do, bit. I do two actually. Frankie, I do two actually. Um, for, the, uh, for the last 490 weeks now, I have done a radio show for Planet Rock, which is a, a, dab, you know, a digital audio uh, station in, in the UK called Planet Rock, and I started doing that to promote the first Down and Outs album. They said, do six shows and, and play your version of one of the songs and then the original version at the end. So I'd start with one of ours and end with theirs. Mm-hmm. And after they said, they signed me for six weeks, and I think by week three or four, they said, will you carry on? Because it's going down really well. So I said, love to. So I've been doing it ever since. So I'm, I'm into my 10th year of doing that. And for the last 20 Almost six months now, I've been doing a monthly, uh, sorry, six months, no, I'm talking about 22 months. So we're talking almost two years now, I've been doing one for Sirius XM in America. Oh. Uh, but that one is only once a month. Yeah. So I'm on deep tracks um, every month. I think they play like eight times, so it's on like maybe twice a week, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I deliver one every, every month. And I just delivered the new one about a week ago, so it's just... It's just gone the like kind of December version of it, if you like. So I'll be due to deliver them a new one in a couple of weeks. And I have to do my end of year kind of review of what came out uh, for Planet Rock 
in about a day's time. I'll actually be recording the show probably on Christmas Day. So that's what I will be doing on my Christmas Day, is recording a, in a radio show. No <laughs> <laughs> wretch for the wicked, my friend. Well, that's what I love about you, Joe. And, and you guys are like truly just such hardworking guys. And when people uh, interview us, you know, Tesla and, and our influence and stuff and and ask about our relationship, I always tell them that I feel it's because we have that same work ethic. You know, we're hard workers and come from the same place as being music fans and not afraid to work on Christmas Day. When you got to do it, you got to do it, you know? That's dead right. You know, it, it works the other way as well. You know, whenever people mention you guys to us, we'll say they're like our baby brothers, you <laughs> yeah. know, because we've known them for so long. It's the same work ethic, which is why we ended up on the same management. Management wouldn't have wanted them if they didn't think think the same way um i don't think you guys ever copied what we do i just think we had the same work ethic and we had the same influences to a point and we and, and so the, there's going to be a similarness there you know there's a lot of bands you can take the small faces and the kinks and say they sound a bit alike but they're yeah. quite different and i think that's the same thing with us you can see you can see that there's a, a, an influence but it's not like derogatory by any means right you guys right. created your own sound which was, you know, and still is to this day, is, is outstanding. And that's why we've always said, whenever the opportunity arose for us to tour together, it's a good match for the audience because they can hear it as well. I think that they'll see a correlation between Def Leppard and Tesla. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's a nice evening out, if you like. It works. Well, all right, man. Well, I'm going to let you get going. I know you were stuck in traffic today, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time. And I really appreciate all the years of support and the inspiration and the great songwriting, my friend. I look forward to seeing you on the road on this stadium tour. I'm going to come there and rock out from the side of the stage as usual, too. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to tell, the, tell the far out listeners? Is there any? No, I, just, I would just like to say um, to everybody that supported um, Devil Ever for the last 42 years, Long may it last. I uh, hope to see a lot of you out on the uh, on the road next year when we go out with our friends Motley's and the Poisons and, and Joe Jet and the Blackhearts. It's going to be it's going to be a big big night. Um, and thanks for supporting the Down and Outs. Um, the I'm, I'm really happy that people are listening to this record and digging it, which is great fun for me. And just to everybody listening, uh, happy Christmas uh, and here's to a very very healthy and happy and successful 2020. Yeah, this is how we roll, Joe. Thank you very much, man. Love you, buddy. Thanks, Frankie. Yeah, you too, bud. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. This has been the Far Out Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Hannon. Thank you to our special guest, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. Once again, join me at the Gibson Guitar Booth at the NAM Show this year, January 15th through the 18th. Join me and the Frank Hannon Band at the Whiskey A Go Go, January 24th. That's a Friday night. And then don't forget the Heavy Metal Hippie Double IPA release party, February 1st at the Out of Bounds Brewing Company. Get your tickets in advance now because that show will sell out.